This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode featuring war correspondents, journalists, and geopolitical analysts. Enjoy. Sebastian Younger. Sebastian is a journalist, war correspondent, Oscar-nominated filmmaker, number one New York Times best-selling author, and founder of the nonprofit organization Risk, which is dedicated to training freelance journalists in battlefield medicine and security protocols. His latest book, Freedom, chronicles his year-long journey walking railroad lines in the east coast of the United States while exploring the tensions between personal freedom and community. Enjoy this portion of the conversation. How did you get that first assignment going to Bosnia, Kosovo? How did, how did that transpire? Like, how does one just all of a sudden end up there? Uh, and then yeah. was your expectation of what it was like, was it anything close to your actual experience on the ground? Yeah, no, good question. So uh, um, I, had, I had gone out west. I was interested in forest fire. And uh, this is in 1992. And I'd gone out west and I'd followed some fire crews. And I basically just said, I don't have a press pass. I'm nobody. I would just, I just want to write about you. I just want to be with you guys. You know, and they gave me, it was, there were women on the cruise too, of course, but they, they, they just, they said, yeah, okay. There's a helicopter that's going out to the, to the, to the fire line, just jump board. And, and essentially, so I wrote an article about that, that was accepted by a, a, a magazine in the early nineties called men's journal. And, um, a great editor there, Steve Byers, uh, sort of espoused my cause and he thought I was a decent writer and so I had this idea of going to Bosnia. I was like, Steve, man, just write me a letter. Just say that I'm working for you. And I wasn't. I was freelancer. <laughs> I was just pretend. Just it don't cost you anything. Just write a letter. And I, if I get hurt or killed over there, I promise my mom's not going to come after you guys. <laughs> like, So over in Bosnia, they had no idea what Men's Journal wasn't a news organization. Like, But they had no idea. So they gave me a press pass. And with that press pass, I got on a UN flight into Sarajevo. And the, the experience, I mean... You know, it was a very, um, it wasn't what I pictured of sort of, you know, World War II combat, right? I mean, it was like, it was very sluggish. And there were moments of high intensity combat, but then it settled into this sort of static front line. And there was the occasional sort of bump and thud of artillery, crack of a rifle shot, a little bit of machine gun fire. But mostly it was a city full of civilians who couldn't wash very often because there was no water. The electricity was, you know, there was no power. Um, they were growing vegetables in the median strips of the roads. You know, they were living. I mean, it, mostly it was life slowed down. It was like very difficult, almost Stone Age sort of pace of survival for most people. And and um, but mostly what I saw about, war, you know, from war, mostly it's like it smells of burning garbage. It smells of people that can't wash enough. You know, it smell. you know, it's like. Mostly it's children who are scared and unhappy and parents who are terrified something's going to happen to the children. Like that's mostly what war is. And um, there is the sharp end of the sort of spear, which is the actual combatants fighting, which is what we see in all the movies. But like an iceberg, like that's the tip of the iceberg. And below that tip is this sort of vast mass of human suffering and human boredom, a huge amount of boredom because everything in a society stops when it's at war like that. Um, and that's mostly what I came away with is just this sort of waste of human potential and human life, um, and not necessarily from bullets, but just because everything stops. Children go to school, don't go to school. I mean, it's really tragic. And so on every 
every single level. And so you arguably spent more time in Afghanistan than most Americans uh, prior to September 11th. Um, is, was that part of uh, coming back, Bosnia, Kosovo, you're seeing, you're looking at, now you're interested in continuing to report in conflict zones. Um, people know you have that experience now. Is this when, when Vanity Fair enters the picture? When do you start yeah. writing for them and actually going forward as uh, as someone without just a letter from uh, a, a right. guy at Men's Journal? Well, suddenly, you know, suddenly I had some credibility. I mean, I did, you know, I was doing very minor, low level stuff as a journalist in Sarajevo, like, you know, radio reports and stuff like that. But then, and but then my, my first book, The Perfect Storm came out and that bumped my profile. And, um, and I just kept going back, you know, I didn't want to write another book. I mean, it probably would have been a bestseller, but I was like, no, I want to, I really want to be a war reporter, you know, and they're not well paid and they're not, they're sort of anonymous, um, really in terms of the public. Like, but, uh, you know, I really want that. It just intrigued me. And, um, it felt extremely meaningful to be doing something like that. And so I just kept going back to war zones and, and, but with assignments now, Vanity Fair started giving me assignments. So now I had a, like quite a high pro, a profile with which to talk about these, you know, quote, forgotten wars. Um, I'd always wanted to go to Afghanistan and, um, I saw photos of Afghanistan. My dad grew up in Europe, as I said, and we lived in Paris when I was a kid. I remember we were walking past a bookshop in Paris and there was this amazing book of photos from Afghanistan in the seventies, like unbelievable photos of these nomads and in the Wakhan corridor, like these Mongol looking people. I just extraordinary. And I'm like, I've got to go. I was 12. I was like, I got to go to this country one day. And eventually I got my chance in 1996, just as the Taliban were taking over. Um, we were shot at by Taliban gunners on the outskirts of Kabul in July of 1996. It's amazing. I remember uh, growing up, some of my parents' friends after college had backpacked through Europe and then yeah. they'd gone to Kabul. They'd gone yeah, through, to right. Afghanistan. It was a very popular right. destination in the, I'd say, late 60s, early 70s. Um, yeah, it was on it was on the hippie trail, right? That's I it. mean, it was, uh, all, you know, to India and, and, and Thailand or whatever, like it was on the hippie trail. It was an amazing place. And it's, you know, as you know, you know, it's physically, geographically, it's just gorgeous. It's, so it's stunning. It's like the American West. It's got everything, you know, and rivers and mountains and deserts and, and the, the Afghan people, I just love the Afghan people. And, um, you know, their hospitality, I mean, beyond hospitality, like we were getting shelled once by the Taliban in 2000, we were on a forward position and it's a very bad situation. We had no, we had no counter batteries, right? I mean, we were just getting shelled with Katusha rockets and there was not, we had nothing on our side to shoot back. And so we just had to curl up in a, in a ball until like they ran out of Katushas, right? <laughs> you know, that's not a good feeling. You know, there was no air power. There was nothing. This is way before Americans were involved. I was with Masood. And um, I remember these fighters were trying to get around me to like, because I was a guest of their nation and of their leader. And they were trying to get around me to protect me, you know, from the, from the explosions. Like, and I, I mean, we lost a horse in that, right? I mean, it was a bad situation. And their courage and their concern about me was so profound, it was almost embarrassing. I was like, no, I, I'll take my own shrapnel, thank you. Like, I appreciate it. But, it, you know, it really was a stunning example of national pride and, and hospitality. It's such a beautiful country. And I was, that's one of the questions that I was going to ask was about uh, that beauty juxtaposed with that violence. And uh, as a reporter, not someone who is uh, who is on a side actually fighting, but reporting on that conflict, um, and someone who is is very active and who spent a lot of time outdoors, and obviously thinks about freedom. What uh, when you juxtapose the beauty of that land and a mountain people 
that have yeah. uh, have repelled invaders for centuries. Most recently, yeah. obviously, us, Soviet Union, the British. Um, what uh, that juxtaposition when you reflect on that beauty and that violence? Um, what what stands out to you? Is it that juxtaposition, or does one or the other uh, kind of sway things for you when you look back on those times in Afghanistan? You know, I, I, most most of the world is gorgeous in its own way, you know, and, um, and, you know, we've created urban environments that I would say aren't exactly gorgeous, but the people who live there, it's their home. Right. And so really the most profound beauty there is, is one's home and one's people. And that's what people are fighting for. And that's sort of why I wrote the book freedom. I mean, freedom, people will die to protect their community. People will die obviously to protect their children. And, People will die for freedom. And I'm not talking about, you know, modern day America where that word is so loaded and used in so many ways. I'm talking about for the past 100,000 years, like the ability to be self-defining, to not be under the unfair or cruel control of a greater power is something that people are like, throughout history, are like, you know what? I might die doing this, but it's better than living unfree. And so to me, it just begs uh, a, a, a book about it. And what I would say about the Afghans is, yeah, they fought the Brits. They, you know, they fought the Taliban. I mean, the Northern Alliance fought the Taliban brutally, right? I mean, they were outnumbered three to one. And the whole Northeast part of the country, because of Massoud's brilliance, they managed to keep free. Um, the Soviets and the U.S. You know, I personally, I think the U.S. was there to try to bring some democratic norms to an unruly violent country. And, I, and for their sake, I wish it had worked. Um, but you can sort of get the Taliban perspective, like, like we don't want the U.S. in here. We want to do, you know, this is our place. This is not your place. Get out of here, right? So on a very basic level, and I loathe the Taliban because they are anti-human rights. They are, in a lot of ways, anti-freedom. But I totally understand from their perspective, they were fighting for their own version of freedom. And, um, and when people do that, um, they can be unbelievably brave. Like, I mean, we're like, I don't care if I die, but this is not happening. I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. And, and, you, and so one of, the, one of the things I wanted to do in my book is look at the commonalities between underdog groups that were successful in preserving their autonomy in the face of a greater power. Um, and, you know, basically the book's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. The first thing people do is run away. They're very mobile. The Apache remained wild and uncontrolled for 300 years after the sedentary Pueblo tribes were rolled up by the Spanish in the late 1500s. The Apache got another three centuries out of it because they were just so they were poor, but they were very mobile. But if you can't outrun them, you're going to have to outfight them. And interestingly for humans, a smaller individual can defeat a larger individual that's unique to humans. Um, and a smaller group can defeat a larger group. Uh, also unique to humans. And even in chimpanzees, this is not true. And so, you know, I looked at these instances where, say, the Montenegrins in the early 1600s, they were invaded by the Ottoman Empire, outnumbered 12 to 1, right? And without artillery, without cavalry, and they just handed them their hat, right? I mean, they destroyed the Ottomans over and over again. You know, so there's this unique human ability to defeat a larger aggressor. And then finally, you know, if you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. And that's where you get into some of the social movements like the uh, labor reform, labor law reform, the labor movement a uh, hundred years ago, um, the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter. I mean, all any number of things that the Easter rising in Ireland a hundred years ago and against the Brits. 
um, groups that look very, very disempowered, like they have no chance against the, the, the national government and its army. And in fact, over and over again, they, they, they can succeed. And I, so I examine, you know, wh- what's the mechanism for that? How does that exactly work? Julian Rademeyer. Julian is an award-winning author, investigative journalist, and one of the world's leading authorities on illicit wildlife trafficking. His best-selling 2012 book, Killing for Profit, Exposing the Illegal Rhino Horn Trade, takes an unflinching look at the demand for rhino horn from Asian markets, fueling its illegal trade and the organized criminal syndicates bringing rhinos to the brink of extinction. He's the director of the Organized Crime Observatory for East and Southern Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Here's Julian. And I want to ask you a little bit more about what rhino horn is here um, in one one second here. Um, and I'm going to read this to give a little bit people a little bit of background. Uh, Perhaps the greatest irony is that rhinos are being killed for the very things that evolved to offer them a means of defense. On the black markets of Southeast Asia, rhino horn is worth more per kilogram than gold, cocaine, platinum, or heroin. It is a product that people are prepared to kill and die for. Vietnam has become a party drug for the wealthy and a panacea for the very sick. And yet it offers no real scientific benefits. Its value is artificial, founded on myth and propagated by greed. Man. So what is the, is it, is rhino horn, what your, your fingernail is made out of and how did it become so valuable? Uh, mm. the, these myths that have just grown, I guess, over the years, um, how did it become so valuable? Uh, what is it? And then I have a, a, a slew of questions about how this cycle <laughs> works and how that guy ends yeah. up in the field with a rifle killing that rhino and how, what that trail looks like all the way back to Asia. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but what is rhino and why is it so rhino horn and what is, why is it so valuable? So, so rhino horn has been traded for, for thousands of years. Um, in China, it's been used for thousands of years. It was until fairly recently. Um, and there's some dispute about how that's been changed, but it was until, until fairly recently in, uh, the sort of Chinese materia medica, the, the traditional medicine um, texts that that underpin Ch- uh, traditional Chinese medicine, and by extension, because China had um, had conquered Vietnam and had moved into Vietnam, it became the the basis for for traditional Vietnamese medicine. And um, so, for thousands of years, people have been using rhino horn for a range of things, including you know, chasing out demons, more extreme versions. But also primarily as a fever reducer. You know, if you if you have a fever, if you have some sort of disease that causes a fever, um, using that supposedly will help bring those symptoms down. Um, the problem is that the markets keep evolving. So if you if you look at the markets in the in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, uh, and this is when Rhino poaching was really hitting East Africa primarily, uh, and then parts of of Southern Africa, South Africa because it was quite isolated. Um, you know, because of the apartheid regime, it was pretty much cut off. There were wars raging in Angola and Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe also similarly had conflict there. So South Africa's populations pretty much escaped that onslaught. But countries like uh, you know Kenya were being re- hit really hard. Um, uh, Zimbabwe got really hit really hard in the 1980s and through into into the early 1990s. Um, and you had markets like Taiwan, for instance, which, uh, you know, a lot of rhino horn going out there, Singapore, Hong Kong. 
Um, South Africa itself had built up quite close ties with some of those some of those countries. Um, you know, it was as a result of sanctions busting. South Africa was under massive sanctions in the 1980s, but also in terms of trying to to fund uh, their own activities. So, you know, through Angola, you had, and it's a story I tell in the book, where the South African military were basically smuggling ivory out of Angola into South Africa, selling it on to, back then, licensed dealers who were then trading it in Asia. Um, so you had all these kinds of routes going on and this massive onslaught. I mean, you know, the, the black rhino population, uh, which at one stage was, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, reduced to, you know, almost in the space of two decades to, to you know, almost nothing, um, you know, a hand four, four or five thousand. And the black black rhinos today remain the most endangered of of all of, of all African rhinos. Um, so those markets kept evolving, and and no one really knows why. You know, it's one of the one of the key mysteries, one of the key unsolved mysteries. Is why did Taiwan suddenly become um, an area of demand for rhino horn, or why did Yemen in the late seventies, with the oil boom, and that's potentially a hint, become a demand for rhino horn, which would be used in Jambia daggers, these traditional daggers that many guys in Yemen wear. Um, why would then, moving on to, to more recent times, why would Vietnam suddenly um, emerge? And it, the only sort of thing that seems to link them together is these pockets of newfound wealth. You know, as those countries develop, as their economies develop, you know, Yemen, mass oil boom, end of the 70s, lots of money around. Um, you know, basically all the rhino horns shifted to Yemen from Asia. I mean, there were some shipments going out. Um, Vietnam, the same thing, you know, one of the rising dragons of, 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 of Asia. Um, and that newfound wealth and the, the nouveau riche there, you'd, you'd find that sort of building up. Um, that was where the demand was. Um, similarly, you had these urban myths that would do the rounds. So there was a tabloid newspaper in Hanoi which told a story about a Vietnamese Communist Party official. That story over the years and the telling, you know, has changed. Sometimes it's a Vietnamese army general. Sometimes it's some, you know, prime minister or former prime minister um, who developed cancer, who was then cured of cancer by taking a mixture of rhino horn and rice wine. Um, to put that in context, so Vietnam has very few hospitals with oncology wards, all of them basically are in major cities. So Hanoi and, and um, Ho Chi Minh City um, tend to have most of those. So a lot of people coming from rural areas uh, are arriving at hospitals, and these are not the greatest. I mean, I went to the one, the oncology ward in Hanoi. You know, you've got people two to a bed, people sleeping under beds, um, you know, Hundreds of people queuing outside trying to get chemotherapy treatment. People who are arriving, you know, in stage four, you know, cancer. Um, and the story started doing the rounds. And then you'd have doctors there who would say, look, we'll treat you with chemotherapy and so on, but you should try this too because it's mm -hmm. maybe it'll help. Um, traditional medicine wards at these hospitals saying that kind of thing. So people latched onto that. And a lot of these guys were, you know, were poor people who were pretty desperate, who would just spend everything that they had to get their hands on a piece of rhino horn. And sadly, in many cases, they were they were given buffalo horn. You know, they were given anything but rhino horn. They were basically a scam. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and then that evolved over time to where 
you know, constantly you've got these networks looking for new markets. It's like the drugs trade, but it's like mm. any commercial business. You know, you, you're looking for opportunities. You're looking for, you know, what's the next big thing? How are we going to sell more of the product? Um, so Rhinohorn then morphed into a party drug where, you know, kids were drinking it as a hangover kid in nightclubs. Um, it became a status symbol for, for the very rich. So there's a banker guy who was vice chairman of Sacom Bank, which is one of the, the second largest bank in Vietnam. Um, he had an entire stuffed rhino from South Africa in his house, which he bought from a guy who shot it in one of these so-called pseudo hunts that we, we talk about where, mm -hmm. you know, you'd have hunters going out, applying for hunting permits, getting a permit to shoot a rhino. South Africa allows limited hunting of white rhino. Um, there's a quota of hunts for black rhino, uh, and that's meant to, to benefit conservation. So five, five black rhino a year. Um, this guy had come out, got a hunting permit, shot the rhino, take, had, it, had a taxidermist stuff it, took the whole rhino back to Vietnam, and then given it to this banker as a, as a housewarming gift. You know, and with a little card saying, Here's to your happy new home. Hope this brings you good luck. So the guy had this rhino in his living room. Um, and first of all, that gift was completely illegal. So, you know, it, ultimately, if you take a, um, a, a rhino trophy out, it's your personal trophy. You can't gift it. You can't sell it. You can't cut it up. You can't do anything. You, it's yours to hang on your wall. It's yours as a trophy hunter. Um, the the banker reported to police, phone police, said, no, someone broke into my, my house and they've made off with the rhino horns. And so you had this extraordinary image of this gray, quite not the best taxidermy I've seen rhino with these horns kind of hacked off. Uh, someone made off for them and the, and the cops there are looking, you know, looking into that. But no one's actually asked the question of how did this banker actually get Right. The, the rhino and what was the motivation of the guy giving it to and what happened to the guy who actually you know did that so those kinds of bizarre things so you'd see rhino horn becoming the status symbol you know guys putting rhino horn on on a mantelpiece or as part of a shrine um people giving chunks of rhino horn as gifts um and then that again morphed into rhino horn as an aphrodisiac being sold so rhino horn wine um which was a, a newspaper myth. You know, it was it was a 1950s, if I remember correctly, sort of newspaper myth that was created that people were using rhino horn as an aphrodisiac um, and a Western sort of newspaper myth. But the syndicates made that real. So they started selling this, you know, this aphrodisiac rice wine. And then you've got carvings, you know, bangles, bracelets, beads, and that going to Chinese buyers who would come into to Vietnam Go to places like Nikke, which is a, a village just outside Hanoi, where there are a lot of artisans and carvers, and which has been a hub of of traffic and trade in in rhino horn, which the the Wildlife Justice Commission did an incredible investigation into. So you've got these constantly shifting markets, and you've got the guys on the on the supply side here in Africa who are trying to you know counter this, and then you've got this market in Asia, which is is expanding, changing, um, you know, syndicates that are operating uh, quickly across borders, uh, law enforcement just simply can't keep up in many cases. Jake Adelstein. Jake is considered one of the foremost experts on Japanese organized crime. 
After graduating from university in Tokyo in 1993, he became the sole non-Japanese journalist at Japan's largest newspaper. He would go on to uncover major stories on the Yakuza, as detailed in his memoir, Tokyo Vice, which is now a series on HBO Max. Here's Jake. How did you, this all come about when you found out about the liver transplant, UCLA, money laundering, Las oh. Vegas, FBI trying to get it? I mean, it made sense, like, why the FBI would help an organized crime person come to the United States for uh, a life-saving procedure, but then it didn't really work out the way that they, <laughs> that they thought no. it would. They got played pretty good. No, the, F- the FBI got really screwed on that. Um, Jim Stern, who is one of my favorite uh, former special agents, uh, uh, I think I wrote, I, I wrote a small little book about him on, on Amazon called Operation Tropical Storm. Um, funny guy. And he was like, yeah, you know, get the information and then give them the deal. That's informant 101. Mm. They should have dangled the fucking liver over his head and been yeah. like, you know, you know, cough it up, go to our, our, our no liver transplant for you. Right. Um, so, you know, my, my, the first time I heard this story, um, I was working on this case about a guy named Kajiyama Susumu. And Kajiyama Susumu had created a network of loan sharking companies in Japan. Where And, and Japan has a serious problem with, like, these consumer loans and loan sharking companies. Um, yeah, people, it ties into the suicides, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it definitely ties into the suicides. Because... Some companies, the company president will put, make them take out a life insurance policy in which he's the beneficiary. That is considered collateral, an asset of the company, because mm. in Japan, if you kill yourself, there's still a payoff. Mm. There's a number of years have to go by. But if someone commits suicide, you do get a payoff. Mm. It used to be one year. Uh, now it's like three or four years. Um, but this guy, Kajiyama, made you know, uh, close to a billion dollars. And... Some of that money he laundered in Las Vegas um, at the MGM Mirage and uh, other casinos. And I, when I was working on that story, uh, you know, someone casually mentioned this, you know, this the Yakuza guy called Cyclops that, uh, uh, you know, go to that used to go to Las Vegas as well. And as a matter of fact, that, you know, he hadn't been back to the United States since he got a liver transplant at UCLA. And I was like, how could this guy get a liver transplant at UCLA? He was infamous. There's no way he could get through customs. I mean, I figured at the start of the story was that he must have bribed someone. And he must have bribed someone or mm. he'd gotten adopted by someone and changed his name. This is a thing you can do in Japan if you want to if you want to banish. You can mm. you can get someone older than you to adopt you and you can change your last name. Then your passport changes and you can sail through the U.S. Um, customs. But uh, that wasn't the case. And I kept on that story for years and years. Um, and then in 2007, um, there was this one cop at the Shimo Kitazawa, at the Kitazawa police station who was downloading porn onto his uh, computer with a file exchange service called Winnie. And to download things, you have to upload things. So he was downloading all this tentacle squid porn, and he accidentally designated his upload folder as the entire database of the Metropolitan Police Department on the Yamaguchi Gumi, which was the organization that Goto was a part of, and a big section on Goto himself, including wow. his travel records. Oh, geez. And when that went on, when that went on the net, I, um, as soon as I heard about it, I called a friend of mine who's much, much more adept at these things. And I'm like, dude, I need you to download this for me before it disappears and uh, put it on a hard disk, which he did. Wow. Um, and going through that was like, you know, I mean, we're talking gigabytes of data. Uh, I think it took me weeks 
months to find yeah. the, the things that let me put it, put two and two together and realize that okay, this guy got into the United States because the because the bureau let him get in. Um, the the liver transplant and all that stuff was arranged at UCLA. The the feds didn't have any part in that. Um, he, he negotiated that on his own. Um, and you know, it's very clear to me if you actually read the UCLA's internal report, um, which I may publish someday on what happened, that that um, there was no way he should have been bumped to the top of the line like that. Yeah. And, and not only did he get in, but three other yakuza got liver transplants at the U, at UCLA. You know, jumping ahead of every other people of other people that definitely should have had them. I mean, these are scumbags. I mean, wow. responsible for you know death and murder and drugs and human trafficking and the fact that they uh, were moved to the front of the line and the U.S. and U.S. citizens died who could have gotten those liver transplants is, is quite appalling. Wow. What do you think? They bought a, uh, they made some donations, perhaps? Oh, yeah. They made, uh, they made a lot Quote, of Quote, unquote, donations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, trackable at least, to go to at least $200,000. $200, yeah. Who do, you, who do you think they made those to? Or do you have, do you know who they made those to? Uh, they made one to the UCLA. Um, uh like in that, I think they set up a go to wing. You can actually see it, photos of it. Um, no way. I, I think the you know they paid in to to the hospital itself because you know the private sense at least a hundred thousand. And I don't want to get myself uh, in trouble here um, in this litigious society, but I have a feeling that there may have been some substantial rewards that went to the surgeon who yeah. had a significant say in who got to go and who didn't get to go. But I don't know. Yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, man, that's wild, um, man. And then you decide to write about this even after being warned off. And there's some some uh, the, the the chapters in here on the sex industry are in pretty eye opening. Uh, whole culture there and then your sources and how you develop those sources and how you get information. A lot of late nights, uh, a lot of like a lot of alcohol, a lot of cigarettes. Um, but, uh, but th those are fascinating. But, uh, when did you decide to, to write, uh, to write the book and is it, uh, is it looking into human trafficking that really made you, I know you talk about that, about being the time when you start to get a little burned out on, uh, on what you're doing. Um, is that what spurred you to, to, to write the book and then, then move on from, from what you were doing there? Um, yeah, uh, I think we have a common friend who um, introduced us who was also working on this project for the State Department about um, human trafficking. Mm -hmm. uh, and they wanted what I would call not a victimology. You know, uh, the Bush administration um, really was down on human trafficking, which is, of course, you know, it's an appalling thing. And Japan was ambivalent. I think mm. they just didn't have any laws on the books. They didn't care. Um, and it was set up so that it was very favorable to human trafficking, which is why Japan was a huge transit point mm. and a huge destination point. So they wanted to know um, why that was, who was responsible, who was, who was, you know, who was corrupt, what organized crime roles played, what immigration offices were letting these people through, why wouldn't Japan actually put anything on the books? And so while I was working on that, um, a friend who was who was a prostitute and a source uh, started looking at a firm that turned out to have been one of Godo's front companies and she disappeared. Uh, hmm. So I don't know what happened to her. Um, I didn't know what happened to her at the time. Um, so I thought, you know, well, you know, I, 
Goto is an asshole, um, and he's into human trafficking. And I have this story that I've never finished, and now would be the time because I have resources, I have time. Um, I'll tell you something. You know, when you're a reporter, you cannot pay for information. At least that was what I was taught. That was the Japanese way, the Japanese code, right? But when you're working ostensibly for the State Department, you know, um, on a report, um, and you're an investigator, you can pay. Mm. Um, you just, you know, I just think they just don't want receipts, right? And <laughs> you pay if you pay crooks for information, it's much faster getting that information out of them. So that was good. And coupled with uh, a data leak, um, I decided to pursue that story of uh, once and for all of his, how he got the, that liver transplant. But of yeah. course, uh, my publisher, my original Japanese publisher wasn't very careful. And when he got wind of it, um, he sort of put out a contract on me. And then the National Police Department asked me to come in and explain what was happening. And then I was under police protection for a couple of years. Yeah. Was your family in this country also under protection? Is that no, no, no? They were in they were in the United States. I was here when it happened and when okay. I got a warning. And uh, one of the cops at the National Police Agency, who I knew from Saitama, um, said to me, like, you know, you should. He said, like, you you need to. He took me aside and he said, look, whatever you're going to write about this guy, you need to write it now. I mean, that's what you do. You're a journalist, right? He, and the only reason he has a reason to, to kill you is because it's embarrassing to him. Mm. Um, but once it's out, he has a whole world of problems that are not you. Because we know that he sold out his buddies to get to, to get a visa to the United States. We know that. Mm. They don't know that. You write it up. You know, he's got no reason to deal with you. He has other problems. He says, you go home now. I think you can run away from this. He, you know, he'll just send someone local to, to take you out. And they'll probably take out your family, too, because it's easier. Mm. You know, just blow up the building. That's that's his modus operandi. It's wipe you out. And if he hires a foreigner to do it, it isn't even dishonorable. You need to stay here and get your shit together and get this story out. And man, I tried. I tried to get a Japanese publication to write it. I remember sitting in a hotel room, had everything written out for this one weekly magazine. And, you know, they sent me a fax of the of what it looked like edited in print. And then at uh, one in the morning, my editor said, hey, man, we, we they've just pulped the entire issue and they're taking your article out. Wow. Like, and I was like, wow. And pulse means it's printed, ready to go, and they destroy it. Yeah, they destroy it. Chris Wallace. Chris is a Peabody award-winning journalist and host of CNN's Who's Talking to Chris Wallace. Back in September of 2021, he was on Danger Close to discuss his life, career, and his book, Countdown Bin Laden, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice. Here's Chris Wallace. And I love uh, that that path through the '70s, but of course, the formative years for me were the '80s. That's that's uh, that's when I grew up, and that's when I first became uh, aware of you uh, when you're working for for NBC uh, as the White House correspondent. And uh, for someone who grew up in in my generation, that's such a pivotal point in United States history, uh, with the United States and USSR, with the Iran Contra, with everything going on there. And you had a front row seat to to all of that, and you really got to essentially, it seems like anyway, come into your own during that during that time and really establish yourself as, uh, as one of the predominant journalists of our time. And uh, what was that like to be in that front row seat as the White House correspondent for NBC News during that period in the 80s? I mean, you got to interview Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan. You got to, uh, to push President Reagan on Iran-Contra before it was even called that. Um, and uh, it, what was that like to, to, to have a front row seat to all of that? 
Well, it was terrific. I went, as you say, six years, the, the chief White House correspondent for NBC covering Ronald Reagan in the White House. And um, it was a wonderful forced education because one day you would be doing U.S.-Soviet relations at the height of the Cold War with Reagan and Gorbachev. The next day you might be doing uh, something going on in the Middle East. The next day, the budget or, or Star Wars or something else. And so over the course of six years, you learned a lot about a lot of things. You went all over the world. I went to all four of the Reagan-Gorbachev summits. I went with Reagan to China in 1984, the, this lifelong cold warrior in uh, Tiananmen Square with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, it, it was a wonderful forced education. And the funny thing is, I've, I've been in the business literally, I can't believe it, a half a century. Uh, I started in 69 and now we're in 2021. Uh, but but those days, those six years covering Reagan and the White House are still so vivid. And, and I can remember so much of that in great detail. Uh, so it's incredible. I hope one day you, you take all this and, and put it all into a into a book with lessons learned and and advice to future journalists and future generations. Um, at, at what point did you interview Mother Teresa? Was that uh, at some point during that that time? No, it was it was just before that I was uh, before I went to the White House. Uh, in 1979, I was still working at NBC, but I was working for a magazine show called Primetime. And uh, Mother Teresa had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so in December of 1979, uh, I, I traveled to Calcutta, India, and spent a week with her watching the, the extraordinary work she did uh, in Calcutta. And 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 you know providing aid and comfort and love and grace to people who didn't have much of any of those things, and that clearly was one of the highlights of my life. I I you know whether you were religious or not, she just operated on a different spiritual plane than anybody I've met before or since. Is that the one interview that stands out as the most uplifting and inspiring of your your time in journalism? Maybe uplifting and, and inspiring. I'm not sure it's the most memorable. No. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it would be in the top 10, but, you know, I can remember getting, and you seem to know so much about my career, getting chewed out by Bill Clinton for 20 minutes in 2006. That was pretty memorable, too. <laughs> uh, not particularly uplifting or inspiring. And, you know, a lot of experiences with a lot of politicians over the year, up to and including Donald Trump. Right. Was the, uh, were, the, were the Trump interviews and the, uh, the Putin interviews, would those be your most contentious uh, interviews of your career, do you think? Uh, Clinton was certainly the most okay. uh, contentious. And, 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 you know, and this goes to something which, um, you know, I get, I get criticized a lot because I like to play it square. And so therefore some people on the right will say, oh, he's a liberal. And, and the answer is, that I think if you look at my interviews over the years, I've been an equal opportunity pain in the neck, <laughs> uh, whether it's to Republican conservative presidents or liberal democratic presidents. In the case of Clinton, it was in 2006, he was out of office, uh, but he was running the Clinton Global Initiative. And I, I was able, and it wasn't easy since I was at Fox by that point to, to get an interview with him. And, and the agreement was we'd spend half of it talking about his project, the Clinton Global Initiative, and a half of it talking about other things. And at that point, a documentary had just come out called the uh, the run-up to 9-11 and, and was quite critical of 
of Clinton and what he had done and failed to do in terms of bin Laden. And I ended up asking him at one point that this is the question, because I got a lot of emails from people, you know, here's what you should ask Clinton when you when you get him. And I said, the question I got most is, why didn't you do more to put bin Laden and Al Qaeda out of business when you were president? And all I can say to people, I'm, it, I, I'm trying to describe it doesn't do it justice. Just go to YouTube and, and type in Chris Wallace and Bill Clinton. Last time I checked was, was several years ago and it had 10 million views and it's worth watching. Oh yeah. No, I'm going to watch that uh, after this for sure. Uh, and if anybody, that, that what I respect most about you is that you are that equal opportunity interviewer. And uh, for anyone who questions that on the right, I would point to some of the last few weeks on Fox News Sunday, uh, April or August 22nd and 29th, when you're uh, talking to Secretary of State Blinken, when you're uh, talking to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, you don't let them off the hook. You are not giving them softball questions at all. And uh, and you're also holding their feet to the fire uh, in, in a couple instances. Uh, do you ever get, get uh, upset or does it get irritating that politicians or bureaucrats don't answer questions directly, uh, and in some cases simply refuse to answer, even with a follow-up and a third follow-up, uh, and then you know you're on the clock because you have an hour on Fox News Sunday and you have another guest coming up. Uh, do you ever does that? How irritating does that get, or is that just something you become used to, uh, kind of playing in that space? Yeah, I, I mean, look, are you frustrated about it? Uh, sure, but if I got upset, I couldn't do my job because a lot of people do that. And, you know, it's part of a challenge. And sometimes you're able to get them off the talking points and to get them reacting and thinking and talking in real time. And that's enormously satisfying. And sometimes you aren't. And then I fall back on something that my father, Mike Wallace, used to say, which is sometimes the questions are more interesting than the answers. And I think if you ask a direct question a couple of times and a guy refuses to answer it, the audience gets it, that he's, he's purposely ducking the question. Oh, yes. And uh, those particular instances are, are fascinating, particularly to those who, who served in Afghanistan or have been following this for the last 20 years, which should be most Americans. But, uh, but what you do and what, uh, what journalists do is uh, they provide us, the citizenry, with the, the data, with the information to make the best decisions possible when we step into that voting booth. And uh, you've had the opportunity from 1964 onward, really, uh, to be involved in that, particularly in the last uh, five, six, seven, eight years when you moderated these these different debates. Um, and my question about those different debates that you moderated, do you ever get nervous? Because you never look nervous. Uh, and you have the eyes of the world on you in that position. Uh, do you ever think about people being critical of questions or uh, just how do you never look nervous? Do you, are you nervous or no? Well, then I must be a good actor because, <laughs> you know, look, I, 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 as somebody said, it's not your, my first rodeo. I've done a lot of stuff. And, and you know, I often think watching a baseball game and it's three, you know, a three, two count in the bottom of the ninth. The bases are loaded and there are two outs and a guy's up and you think, God, how can he stand the pressure? But the answer is you don't come to that situation without having built up to a, a lot of time. So you know, one doing starting in local news and doing a mayoral debate and then a gubernatorial debate and a Senate debate. And then you're now you're in a presidential. I will say, though, and I had done some primary debates on Fox with just Republicans. But to do a general election debate and the first one I did was the third debate between Trump and Clinton in 2016. Uh, I, I was nervous, not uh, somewhat right before, but especially in the days and weeks building up, there were times when I would just get a wave of anxiety because one is so darn important. I mean, 
one of these two people on the stage is going to be the next president of the United States. And, you know, you want to do justice. You want to give them an opportunity to have a fair debate. You want to ask equally tough questions of both sides. You want to stay as as invisible as possible. My idea of the perfect debate moderator is somebody says, that was a great debate. By the way, was there a moderator there? That to me is mm. you're doing your job. It's not about you. But, but you know, there are, there are times when you, I would just think, I don't know that I can handle this. 80 million people watching, but, but you, uh, you know, you rise to the occasion. I'll tell you one quick story. So I was just about to do the 2016 debate and the, the, the debate com- commission, the presidential debate commission, the two commissioners were talking to the crowd and telling them to be quiet. And I was just off stage in the wings. And I literally, just before I'm about to come out, I looked up. I don't think I've ever done this before. And I said, dear Lord, if you just get me through the next 90 minutes, I promise I will never ask you for anything ever again. <laughs> well, I did the debate. The debate went fine. Actually, I think it went really well. And I come off the stage and I'm just walking past the place where I have made my little prayer. And I stopped and I went up and I said, dear Lord, I know what I said, but could I have another debate for four <laughs> years? I, I kind of wish that uh, the dear Lord had not listened to that because, of course, the 2020 debate was a different matter. Take on the holiday season with the help of Navy Federal Credit Union. When you use the Navy Federal Cash Rewards Card, you can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases. You can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. And using the Navy Federal mobile app makes redeeming easier than ever. Enjoy the rewards of cash back without any annual fee, balance transfer, or foreign transaction fees. There are no limitations on rewards, and they never expire while your account is open. Learn how you can get cheer to last all year with the cash rewards card at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, rates are variable and range between 12.65% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Katie Pavlich. Katie is a journalist, commentator, author, and Fox News contributor. She is the editor for townhall.com and is a member of the White House Correspondents Association. She was my first guest on Danger Close, and if you look closely, you may catch her cameo in the Terminalist on Prime video. On the podcast, we discuss her first book, Fast and Furious, Barack Obama's Bloodiest Scandal and its Shameless Cover-Up. Here's Kate. Did you have a... What do, you, what do you call a confidential informant? Uh, like anonymous sources? Do you have yeah. guys that sat down with you and they're like, hey, I, you know, don't, please don't use my name, yeah. but mm-hmm. boom. Uh, was that your first time doing that or have you done that before in other yeah, stories? Yeah, that was like my first time really kind of understanding that I, you know, would have to make decisions about if someone came to ask my who my sources were mm-hmm. and I, I would have to tell them I'm not telling them. Right. And what was that, that was going to mean for me? And that was definitely something that was potential given the way that the Justice Department responded to the whistleblowers who came forward publicly and to the the um the journalists who were writing about it or asking questions about it um that never happened but it was definitely like okay this is a serious situation it wasn't just like some political operative coming to me with dirt and saying i don't want to be named because 
I, mm-hmm. it might ruin my career or something. It was like people with real information who would be in danger if you mm-hmm. published their name or right. gave something away, like in a detail that made it obvious who you were talking to. So yeah, it was interesting. Like did, meeting with people, you know. Did you ever do a phase like that, that intimidation? Were you ever were you ever intimidated by that? Or were you always would you ever take a second and be like, wait a second, am I doing not not am I doing the right thing, but hey, is this safe? Like what I'm doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, you know, it's part of the job. Yeah. So oh, that's wild. And yeah. then yeah, I think you, know, you look back at things that you do and you're like, that, that could have gone very wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could have gone very wrong. Like, I'm going to meet with this stranger that I've never met before. Did you meet in weird places? It was like it was like a movie? Did yeah. You, like, not not like a ton, not a lot, but yeah. like a few times. And you're like, okay, this this could have gone very, very poorly. Oh, that's so wild. But, and then, so you did a series of articles on it first for Town Hall, yeah. is that right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. when did you get the idea that, hey, I should turn this into a book or did someone suggest it? Actually, how did that work? I had no plans for a book and the publisher called and said, hey, do you want to turn this story into a book? How did they and, uh, find you? So they just caught, Regnery is um, a longtime DC, more right-leaning publisher. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I had been talking about it in lots of different media forums at Town Hall. I was on Fox talking about it. Um, This was like prior to becoming a contributor there. Um, So I I was just, it was just like something I was doing a lot of. And it was such a big story that it really did warrant a book. I just, Mm -hmm. I didn't think that was like what I plan on doing. Um, But they just called and said, do you want to put it in book form? And I was like, sure. Sounds great. (laughs) So they gave me three months to get it done. But the thing is, I already had like, all this work that I had done. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like rewrote everything and put it in one place. Um, yeah. And I had, you know, I had a lot of help from other writers and journalists too, who had been researching and writing about this stuff like yeah. way before I ever did. So they were helpful as well. That's amazing. And then what yeah. happened to Jay, was it uh, Jay Dobbins? Is what, yeah. what happened? Where is, where is he now? And uh, for a little bit more background on him, what is it? They went to burn his house down. Yeah. And like all sorts yeah. of like craziness. So, Jay, I, I should get in touch with him. I haven't talked to him in a while, but um, I think he's still in, in Arizona and he, Jay's story, he, he also has a bunch of books. He has, um, a, he, his first big undercover job as an ATF agent was going undercover in Hell's Angels. And the first day on the job ever for him as an ATF agent, he got shot in the chest and almost died like wow. in a trailer park. Wow. Welcome to the ATF. <laughs> yeah. So his, his book is awesome. Uh, Jay Dobbins, you should look it up. It's, it's amazing. It's about his life as an ATF agent, did a lot of undercover work. Um, but going back to the, the same players we're talking about who are corrupt and all that who are involved in Fast and Furious, they basically tried to frame him for burning his own house down. Yeah. And he sued them like for over a decade over it. Jeez. And I've written a lot about it. You can see it. Um, I, I can send you the link or something, but it's the story is just crazy. Like his house gets, he was undercover with Hell's Angels. He gets found out that he's an operative. So he gets all these threats from Hell's Angels and other gangs, and ATF doesn't do anything about it. And then because his house, he's already been a, he's already a whistleblower at this point. He's already a troublemaker. Because he had like spoken up about a few things, you know. Yeah. And all of a sudden, his house gets burned down. Well, his wife and kids are home. They got out, thank God. But mm-hmm. his house gets burned down, and then ATF doesn't want to do an investigation, and then turns around and falsely accuses him of arson on his own home, on yeah. his own home. Yeah. I can see. I mean, I can see how they do that. Yeah. You know, it's just that's so crazy. That's basically what happened. He was getting all these threats. And so. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Man. So, so this book comes out and then what was, were some of those reaper, like, was everything about the book 
positive and that people are like, wow, this is amazing? Uh, or were, was there any backlash either personally or professionally um, after this book was published? Um, I mean, DOJ didn't like that the book was published. Um, but that was like the extent of, I think, the negativity. I think that people were grateful that the story was, or at least most of the story was in one place because it was a hard to digest as incremental pieces. Um, but yeah, the feedback was really good and, um, people wanted to read it and I was just happy to be able to get the story into another medium, yeah. you know, cause I already had it in digital form. I was talking about it on radio and TV, but it was really nice to have everything kind of in one compact place. Yeah. Um, and for me it was, it was just about like justice for like my, what I could do and what I could help do for, um, Brian Terry's family and mm-hmm. just letting people understand what happened because they went through so much and they were lied to and things were covered up. And I think it was just last year that the final, uh, his final murderer was finally uh, extradited from Mexico. Um, And so they just been through so much and I just felt like they deserved for that story to be told of all of the, um, not even incompetence, but like corruption that occurred surrounding Mm -hmm. what happened and it could have been prevented is the thing. And I still think there's a lot that we don't know about what happened. Like how many exact rifles were there? How many exact that and like you know? And what happened was he was ambushed as border patrol agent yeah. um, in Arizona mm-hmm. and was ambushed. And one of the rifles used in that ambush was part of this Fast yeah. and the Furious right. operation. Yep. And then his family wasn't told about the, everything. It's, it's, things slowly start leaking out here and there. More yeah. whistleblowers, and that was really the like the impetus behind more people coming forward. If, if yeah, because the email traffic shows them like c- covering it up. It shows them panicking about the fact that this trace on a gun that was used to kill a border patrol agent came back to their operation. And everybody lied about it. And then it. everybody, everyone lied about it, started lying about Napolitano, it. And then all of a sudden the operation older. gets shut down. This, now that they've shut it down because someone's been killed, but they're not talking about why they're shutting it down. And the reason why stuff started coming out is because John Dodson came forward to talk about what they were doing and what led to Brian Terry's death because John Dodson knew that the trace came back showing oh, wow. it was one of their guns. So if he hadn't stepped forward, people still might, they, this family would still be searching right. for answers or maybe yeah. it would just be, Oh, it was a, it was a, an AK. Maybe it was from the U S but it wasn't from, from us. They right. could just continue. They would have, they would, yeah, they would have said that it was a border patrol agent killed with a firearm that was purchased at a gun store in Arizona yeah. without telling the whole backstory. Um, so, you know, I still think that they don't have the justice that they deserve. I think Eric Holder continued to lie to them, didn't give them any respect, um, tried to punish people for getting them answers. Um, But, you know, this is my small way to contribute to trying to get some kind of accountability. And I think we got a little bit. I mean, Holder will fail up as well, but, you know, he's the only attorney general to be held in contempt. So that's something small. And was that from uh, Daryl Ice's uh, Mm -hmm. questioning? His investigation. Yeah. yeah. So it just, it was a lot of information. And, you know, every time they would ask for documents, they'd come back with like, there's, I think I have some in here. It was like pages just blacking uh-huh. where like they just wouldn't, you know, and Eric Holder continued to deny under oath that he had nothing to do with it. He didn't know anything about it. But then we like find memos with his name on it, like talking about the operation, uh-huh. you know. Um, and, and he denied all of that also while they still have this narrative going that like Mexico has a gun problem because we're 
you know, were the, were the source. Yeah. So he obviously knew about it. And then it would actually went into the White House because, you know, people in the White House are working on Latin American uh, issues. Like we're having meetings and it's just a lot more that we don't know. And then once the name of the guy in the White House came out who was associated with this operation, which the White House denied they knew anything about, they like send him to Iraq and like put him at a desk and like took his phone away so no one could talk to him. Wow. Like they shipped him out. And then, like, Obama said that he didn't know anything about it. But then all of a sudden, he's invoking executive privilege so that nobody can see the documents that Congress wants. Yeah. But, so, Uh, yeah. So crazy. crazy. (laughs) So this is the book right here. Yep. And I love the cover. So who... uh, who did your cover? Is that your publisher? Ragnar did it. Yeah. yeah. That is an awesome cover. Yeah, it's a great cover. I love the AK. Yeah, it looks, that's, it's sweet. And it's the uh, Mexico flag yep. colors cool. on there. Yeah. So they did an awesome job with that. And then follow yeah, on to that it. was cool. uh, Assault and Flattery. How many years did that come out after this? Uh, when Assault and Flattery was 2017. Yeah. So a few years after yeah. mm-hmm. after this one, so that one is is yeah. out there too. Yeah, My it's wife very it different, right a very different book. <laughs> and, <laughs> but. And, and going forward, what uh, so what are plans? Are there plans for another book at any point? I I have some ideas. Um, you know, with the news cycle, this when I wrote this book, media was very different even just ten mm. years ago than it is now. And now, if you're writing a newsworthy book things just move so quickly that by the time you get it published, it's old. So there's this like struggle about, you know, how you kind of write that, at least for me, Uh you know, how to kind of change your writing style to fit with the times and how quickly things need to be out and that kind of thing. Um, But I have some ideas. Yeah. If you love America, then Black Rifle Coffee Company has you covered for the holidays. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, check out all the gear, merch, apparel, and coffee roasting equipment. Once again, blackriflecoffee.com. I am a member of their exclusive coffee club, and I also get this big bag right here of Silencer Smooth delivered every month. You can go click on your favorite roast and set your schedule for delivery, and then bam, there it is on the front doorstep every single month. It is absolutely awesome. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, veteran founded, veteran run. Go check them out, blackriflecoffee.com. Peter Zihan. Peter is a geopolitical strategist, renowned author, speaker, and consultant. His firm, Zihan on Geopolitics, provides custom analytical products to a vast array of clients. In May of 2022, he was on Danger Close for a conversation about the events in Ukraine and his latest book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Here's Peter. I want to jump into Ukraine because you talk sure. about it in here. Uh, and that's where I focused when I was writing that second novel because that's where what I was writing about. But um, man, you must be very busy right now um, <laughs> because you predicted what is happening now back in 2014. And you can't, you're not just saying you did. It's right here. <laughs> it's <laughs> you, can in look, print. <laughs> you can look at the date uh, in here and be like, oh, wow, it's amazing. And not only did you, did you predict what was going to happen, you predicted the exact year. You say you have, they have eight years uh, to continue to field this, this army um, because their population is in, in such a rapid state of decline. Uh, they have about two generations left um, as far as ethnic Russians go outside of Russia. Ukraine is the largest population of ethnic Russians out there. Um, but you predicted eight years 
And where are we right now? We are right there Great. in that window. Um, so how did you get to that conclusion back in 2014 for everyone listening? Um, and then what did you think in these last few months in the lead up to what's going on now? Uh, well, everything I do has two themes, deglobalization as the United States backs away from guaranteeing security that makes global trade possible and depopulation. When the United States made global trade possible, we allowed industrialization and urbanization to spread throughout the world to places that would have never been able to pull it off before because they would either be colonies or the targets of conflicts. Uh, so by making the world safe, people started applying industry and technology to agriculture, and that allowed people to move off the farms and into the cities. So we've been in this 75-year-long urbanization phase because of those two trends. When you move from the farm into the city, you start having fewer kids because when you're on the farm, kids are free labor. And when you are in the city, kids are really, really expensive pieces of mobile furniture that take money from you. <laughs> I'm familiar. We're not stupid. We can do basic math. So we've gone in two generations from the average woman in the world having more than five kids to less than three. And different countries have moved at different speeds. But as a rule, the poorer the country was in 1945, the faster this process has happened. Hmm. The later adoptees of industrialization and globalization get to learn from everything that everyone has done before. And so in the case of China, they have gone from a rural system where the average woman had six kids to an urban system where the average woman has like 1.2 now in less than a lifetime. Uh, so they're going to be the first country, one of the first countries, to face a complete population crash. In the case of Russia, it was a little bit slower, but it started earlier with World War One. And by the time we got to the post-Cold War collapse, the birth rate fell so far that the Russians now, today, are simply not able to arm their or to man their army. So this is this is their last gasp. This is their last chance if they're going to rewrite the borders. And that brings us back to geography. Because if you look at a map of Russia, the population lives in kind of this sideways V going from the European side to the Asian side, getting thinner as it goes. But there are no natural boundaries around it. No oceans, no mountains, no deserts. It's a lot of open territory that the Mongols crossed, the Germans crossed. They've been invaded 50 times. But all 50 of those times, the invader has come through one of nine gateway territories, like the Polish Gap or the Bessarabian Gap. So the Russian plan is with this last chance they have to forward to play to those gaps and plug them before they lose the military capacity to even try. Mm -hmm. So this was always their last chance. And Ukraine was never the end of it. It's actually step four, I would argue, after things like Crimea and Georgia and Nagorno-Karabakh and Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not the end because they still have to get to Bessarabia. They still have to get to Poland. They still have to get to the Baltic. So when they're done with Ukraine, we still have six more countries. So when you, I think was life expectancy in Russia still, is it 59-ish, 58, 59? We, we don't have good data anymore. Yeah. They really stopped reporting that several years ago. Uh, they started just fabricating stuff. But as of the last time that they reported data that was somewhat trustworthy, it was 59. Average age of marital mortality, you know, is now below the retirement age. Uh, and there's not a lot of leadership left. Uh, we're in this weird situation because of demographics that they now have a total national elite of probably only about 150 people. Wow. 
And so every time one of them slips in the shower and falls on some bullets or chokes on a chicken bone or whatever it happens to be, it's a national crisis because these people are irreplaceable. They're, they're, they're survivors from the KGB cadre from the late Cold War. They haven't trained up any new ones. They haven't had the institutional capacity to do that. So here in the United States, our, our elite is over 2 million people because you can get into it from business. You can be a private uh, public servant like Biden. Uh, you can do a reality TV show and get elected like Trump. Uh, you can be in show business like Reagan. You know, you, there's any number of ways and it's a very churny, regenerating system. The Russians do not have that. So this is, this is their last chance in terms of demographics, in terms of economics, in terms of military, in terms of leadership. They, they have to do it now. Jeez. And do you think is, is uh, President Putin or that um, that, uh, uh, that oligarchy or that elite in Russia, are they looking at it through the same lens that you are? Are they looking at, are they, are, are they very aware of this demographic, uh, decline? And uh, is that why they're doing it? Or is that just something that you predicted that's happening or, or is that at the forefront? I think it's of something that at a process? minimum is in the background, you know, I'm not privy to their interior mail. Like apparently the CIA is now, which, oh my God, <laughs> the CIA has gotten really good. And it's like, whoever is doing has gotten really good at reading Putin's yeah. gotten really good at reading Putin's mail. Um, I know this was under discussion before they really went into lockdown five years ago. Mm. Um, the degree to which it's driving their day-to-day decision-making, I'm, I'm not privy to that, but if they're not, it's a really insane coincidence. Yeah. No, if they've read you, they, <laughs> they should be aware of it. Uh, and for me, when I think of it through that lens, I think, okay, well, there, this is the last gasp of a dying empire, essentially. If you're looking at two generations and you're looking at things in longer than four-year election cycles, maybe eight years for the real deep thinkers among us. So if you know that your country essentially is done in two generations and your army has a lot less time than that, um, you it seems like you'd feel like you're backed into a corner and you have no other option essentially other than to invade this country that has this ethnic Russian population and that has this history that is so, so very tied to your country. Um, so it seems like for me, that would be what is making them so dangerous right now. It, yeah, it was, uh, it's always been inevitable. There's always yeah. been a question of whether it was imminent. And obviously we're there now. Um, there's something that a lot of people in the foreign policy space have been saying for years that, you know, we push them into this to a degree that, by expanding NATO, we made them more and more unstable, more and more paranoid. And there's something to be said for that because the Russians have always known they had to get these gaps. But the only version of Russian security that would have satisfied Russia is if the Russians were able to write the security policies or occupy a number of countries with a combined population of twice of their own. Mm. That was never a viable option. So these critics, they're right, but they're also stupid. Mm. And what, uh, I was going to ask you about, about NATO and about the specifically this last year, like we have the demographics here. You predicted this all those years ago, that this was going to happen, but then we have, what is it? November 10th, when we signed that strategic partnership, um, which really asserts, uh, America's support of Ukraine, maybe eventually possibly mm-hmm. joining. It's a very NATO. wishy-washy document. <laughs> yeah. So, but what is, what does Putin think? And what does, uh, does Russia think when they see that? Um, uh, they certainly don't like it. Um, I, I don't think the Russians read too much into that one. I, I think what really drove the Russians to do it like now, like right now, um, as opposed to eight years from eight years ago, uh, but why February is uh, when Trump was president. You, I'm sure you remember all the impeachment funding games. The core issue there was that 
Trump tried to blackmail the current president of Ukraine, Zelensky, into getting dirt on Hunter Biden in exchange for continuing military support of Ukraine. This is, the, this he, is the phone call, the infamous phone this call. This is the phone call. Well, I mean, it's the, the, the Trump administration released the transcript. So it's not, mm. none of this is controversial. Whether or not that's an impeachable offense, I will leave that to Congress. But what we know for sure is that Trump tried to do the blackmail. It didn't work. And so he withheld military assistance. And so the military assistance that had been slowly building up stopped for a couple of years. And it wasn't until we get to the Biden presidency that it picked up again in large scale. And it wasn't until the Biden administration became uh, in power that some of the weapon systems that we had provided, we gave them permission to use them on that eastern front where the separatists were. That started in November of last year. Those weapons finally faced the Russians in November. That's when the buildup in Russia started. They realized that the window for them was closing very quickly. Because if you can operate a Nintendo Game Boy, it javelin missiles easy. And all of a sudden, they were losing armor and, uh, and uh, trucks to javelins uh, a dozen a week. And they realized that if they didn't act soon, Ukraine wouldn't be nearly as easy to fall. And now we're in a situation where I think we've provided them with something like 3,000 launchers. So the Russians can still win but the cost is going to be very, very high. So then looking back, would you say that uh, that is a mistake to, to arm a country next to your adversary who's going to use those weapons on that adversary? Like, is, it, is that uh, a provocation? You know, you again, uh, let, me pull, let me play the adoption card here. <laughs> it's like, there are three countries in human history that have threatened the United States. Britain, we, uh, with Lend-Lease in World War II, they became our junior ally. We will never let them out of that position. Mexico, we invaded them, we took half their territory, we're best buds now. Russia, that pointed nukes at us, that still points nukes at us, that mm -hmm. never stopped pointing nukes at us. Uh, destabilizing that is kind of hardwired into the American strategic ethos, and it's yeah. hard for me to find fault with that. So does that mean that the, that war, that U.S.-Russia war eventually is just is going to happen at some point because we've had all this time to figure this out. And this looks like what war is what a failure of diplomacy um, in many cases. So um, it, it's just, for me, it's like so hard to think about this in terms of we've made it all the way through Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War. Uh, we, we have had 30 years since the end of the Cold War now without a nuclear exchange. Uh, and now we're talking about it. Yeah, now I'd actually argue that the Biden administration which never wanted to get into a war with Russia in the first place, um, is actually more concerned about that and more concerned about avoiding it now because the Russians have done so badly in Ukraine. Uh -huh. We now know that if it comes to a face-to-face a, a -face fight between American forces and Russian forces, that we will obliterate them. Absolutely. There, there's, there's no other way this could go. There, there's For a country with the lack of military expertise, equipment, and funding of Ukraine to be standing up to Russia... Are the Ukrainians overperforming? Sure. But the Russians are just, they're coming across like the Iraqis in Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. They just don't seem to know even how to drive a truck down a road without running out of gas. There's a 40-mile column of armored vehicles and tanks coming down from Belarus that has been up installed for over a week because it ran out of fuel and then it ran out of food and everyone just had to leave their vehicles and walk back to Belarus. That's insane. So if you put that against the U.S. Army and Air Force, oh my God. Yeah. 
Did that surprise that you? Scenario, did, performance, did that surprise you? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much so that, that the Russians could have lost all of the lessons that they learned in Chechnya and Syria. And here they are in a real war that really means something to them strategically. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're just collapsing. So in the scenario of an American-Russian clash now, the Russians have two options, a humiliating retreat and nukes. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, But SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they're always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, It will never be forgotten. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. For full episodes and books, please go to the show notes. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And until next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. My collaboration with KC Cattle Company is out Now, Kansas City Cattle Company, veteran-owned and operated. There are two exclusive Jack Carr bundles. One is for the whole family, and that includes their award-winning Wagyu uncured beef hot dogs. And a second bundle option, which is my favorite, includes something special. A massive Wagyu tomahawk steak and a cross tomahawks branding iron. So you'll be able to add the cross tomahawks logo to all of your steaks. It's awesome. And you can go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop to check that out. But hurry, because they are going fast.